I would love to begin to get some of your feedback or thoughts or ideas. So about the first question, where's Doug Ellis when I need a good whistle? <laughs> there we go, I like it. All right, let's, uh, let's uh, begin to de debrief our time in the TAPS exercise just for a moment. Um, what did you all like or not like about what you saw? Now granted, of course, you didn't see everything and there are many others to see, but just in terms of the cross-section that you saw, what do you like or not like? Sally? Yeah, I like the holograms, uh, just varying proportions again, putting it over, and I like the educational part. Mm -hmm. So some of that stuff I didn't ever get to see. Mm -hmm. Just didn't get pretty Good, so there is a strong educational component to not all of them, but many of these uh, uh, Bible theme parks, and the uh, Holy Landing experience uh, is one of them, for sure. Other, other reactions to what you saw? They seem simplistic. So was that a good or a not good for you? A not good. Maybe an overly <laughs> simplistic presentation of things. Yeah, that's good. That's but good. Yeah. Yeah. And so we could weigh that, right? So it's a tr maybe its simplicity is its attractiveness, right? So you think of it's like the the USA Today version of 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 of, of, of Bible themes, right? So it's a, it's a it's a little easier to access, and so that might draw certain people in who might not otherwise be, be drawn in, and that's a good thing, but then the version they get of the story, in this case the Bible story, might be a little too simplistic for our liking. <laughs> but with the context, and, and it, it's shown me something that's very digestible, yeah. or in many ways digestible. Good, good. Thank you. So this, I mean, these things might replace uh, or, or uh, fill in the gaps for folks who might not already have an encounter with these biblical ideas, right? This might be the introduction to the biblical themes that you wouldn't otherwise get. And it doesn't require anything of you. You might expect to have an answer or yes. Now, actually, that's an interesting point about what these uh, parks require of you. I'm going to make the case, actually, that, that, that some of them are very different on that very matter. And that actually, to me, makes some of these parks feel very different in terms of their encounters. So I'll get to that in just a moment, about what they require of us or what they try to give us, maybe is a better way of putting it. And what if these kind of preach to the choir mm. instead of being opening? Mm -hmm. 
So it's a question of audience. I mean, are these really, because some of these places, particularly the Creation Man, uh, Museum and the Ark Encounter, are, in terms of their literature, are very evangelistically oriented. That is to say, their purpose is, at some level, conversion. And so their audience is then, thus, non-Christian at one level. But I think, Bruce, you raise a good point about how many non-Christians stumble upon uh, the Ark Encounter, right? It's, it's, it's easy to imagine if you're a church in the Kentucky area and hear of this that you might go, but, but if, if you're not already connected to these issues, would you go? Ian. Oh, so let me go Ian and then we'll go to uh, Margaret. They help make things of faith concrete. Okay, yeah. Examples right. from the Bible. It's not just some place far away mm -hmm. in And that's a, a good thing? Yeah. yeah, I would say that's a good thing, right? It helps us visualize or materialize things that so often are just kind of ethereal uh, or immaterial in our heads. Margaret? With the Creation Museum, mm -hmm. you have dragons and dinosaurs mm -hmm. in the same space. Mm -hmm. Uh, so th this is to Lucretia's point as well about how directive are some of these places about what their messages are. That is to say, in the Creation Museum, they tell you exactly how it is. It's not left for interpretation. One minute, and we'll get to it. <laughs> Let me actually begin to make that, that, uh, that transition, because I want to be mindful of our, our time here in our last session, because we're here for two hours. Is that, is that right? No, okay. Um, well, here's where I went ahead. I want to kind of continue this conversation about what we like and don't like, but I want to give it a bit more of a theological framework in terms of what's happening at two sample places. We're going to look more closely at the Creation Museum, and we're going to look more closely at the Fields of the Woods uh, Ten Commandments uh, theme park. Um, I chose, I've chosen both of these because I've been to both, so I think it gives me a slightly, uh, I feel better about the sorts of things I will say about it because I actually experienced it. Um, and in my experience, some of these strike me, these various Bible theme parks, as being very different. I mean, they all fit the same genre, but kind of I come away with a very different sense, uh, depending in a, kind of on a case-by-case -case basis. And I have to say, and I'll just preface it by this, I came away from the Creation Museum with a starkly different feeling than I came away from the Fields of the Woods. And I want to name what that is and why that was the case. And then in the end, as we conclude, I want to say something, uh, something very positive about what I think is valuable about this phenomenon of Christian theme parks. So uh, that'll be then the official end of session seven, and then, then we'll move uh, to session eight, okay. Okay, session eight. From theme parks to pilgrimage, the end of roadside religion. In this final session, we'll dig a little bit deeper into the history and ideas that lie behind two Bible theme parks, namely the Creation Museum and the Fields of the Woods Bible Park. We'll conclude with a brief discussion of what we might learn or gain, gain from this curious example of roadside religion. So first, let's return to Fields of the Woods. That's that world's largest Ten Commandments park. I'll give you a little bit of history about how it came into existence. Its origins can be traced to the Christian holiness movement that began in the late 1880s. This new movement proclaimed that one's conversion to Christianity in baptism or original baptism was not sufficient and must be followed by a second baptism, a baptism by fire, a baptism by the Holy Spirit that would result in a manifestation of spiritual gifts, including speaking in tongues, and also would make you perfect 
in God's sight. Only through that second baptism would God see you as accepted and fully justified and sanctified. This, now, this movement in the late 19th century, or 19, uh, 19th century takes hold with Christians who had become dissatisfied with the creedal orientation of many uh, Christian denominations. And by uh, 1907, this group was formalized into a new denomination called the Church of God, and it was led by Ambrose Jessup Tomlinson, whose picture you see here. Now, in these initial years of the 20th century, the church boomed in membership. But it didn't take long for the church to fracture. By 1923, Tomlinson was ousted from the Church of God on account of financial mismanagement. The church, as happens, uh, split, and 2,000 members went with Tomlinson and formed a new but closely related denomination called the Church of God of Prophecy. Now, what is the Church of God of Prophecy? Well, it's a, it's a denomination that sees itself as the modern, present-day manifestation of the New Testament apostolic church. That is, there was a two, basically a 2,000 year ellipsis, and this church is finally back to the New Testament church that we read in the pages of the New Testament. Um, uh, further, that, in addition to that, they have a certain curious view of biblical interpretation. They believe that passages from Scripture that were talked about long, long ago were finally being fulfilled in their day and age, such that the prophets and the writers of the New Testament didn't really know what they were talking about, or at least they only knew partially what they were talking about, because everything they described was only coming into fruition here in Murphy, North Carolina, at Fields of the Wood and this, uh, the Church of God of Prophecy denomination. Here's an example. Tomlinson, who again is the founder, uh, thought that it was no coincidence that he received his vision for what this church would be like in 1903, the same year that the Wright brothers first took flight in North Carolina. Now, why did he think that was not a coincidence? Well, he saw the Wright brothers and the invention of the airplane as the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision of the winged chariot of God. And so as a result, Tomlinson amass, amasses 110 uh, planes, which he calls the White Angel Fleet, and he used them to drop Bible tracts all over the world and all over the country. So that's the sort of biblical kind of mindset they're in, that these things that were talked about long ago were coming to fruition in what he was experiencing in the present day. The Fields of the Woods was established then as the world headquarters of the Church of God of Prophecy in 1941. It was there on the west side of the property where we see the Ten Commandments today that Tomlinson had his first vision of what the church was to be like. Uh, uh, and so in com commemoration of this revelation, uh, he forms this park uh, th that we see here in these pictures. So he sees this place as a type of Sinai. He makes this connection, Tomlinson does, between him and Moses, this site of revelation, this site of God's purpose and prophecy coming true for the world. Now the motif of Old Testament fulfillment also uh, finds influence into the name of this very place. Uh, the name Fields of the Woods actually comes from Psalm 132, 6. Um, and in this passage, it speaks of how the Israelites recovered the Ark of the Lord, or the Ark of the Covenant, as it's sometimes called, in, as the KJV puts it, quote, the fields of the wood. And they finally return it then to its rightful place in Jerusalem. So uh, Tomlinson finds this passage and makes this connection between the founding of the church and the Israelites finding the Ark 
in the fields of the wood. Now, just an interesting translation I issue here. The word for wood in Hebrew, ya'ar or ja'ar, could also be read as a, as a place name. So the NRSV then translates, uh, we heard of it, the ark in Eph Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of ja'ar. So they understand it as a place name. In either case, Tomlinson is seeing his denomination in this theme park in this parallel with the Israelites finding the Ark of the Covenant. This is the sort of thought process, I think, behind this, this sort of place. Now, what's going on here in particular uh, with uh, the big monuments, the Ten Commandments? Well, in the early years, or let me ask this other question, why do people go? Why would you go to this sort of place? Well, in early years, almost all the visitors were members of the Church of God of Prophecy. It was their site for general assemblies and official church meetings, so just naturally, if you were involved in this denomination, you would find yourself in Murphy, North Carolina, at this theme park. But today, few still exist from that denomination, and, and fewer still actually go to this place from that denomination. And so, outside of that, one wonders, why go? After all, as opposed to the Holy Land experience or the other things that we've seen, there are no rides, there are no shows, there are no lights, there's no putt-putt. The little restaurant there is not even that good, I know from experience. Uh, so there must be something else. There must be something else that draws people there. Maybe it's the mountains. One of my students, Emily, talked about how she felt reconnected to nature in God in that beautiful place. That's legitimate, I think, and powerful. But maybe it's something else. Maybe, after all, it's the size that matters to a visitor. One has, I must say, a sense of awe of being in the presence of a Ten Commandments that is so overwhelmingly huge. You're literally dwarfed in the Word. It's the Word writ large. And so I want to say that I think uh, this, this huge display of the Ten Commandments functions in a way as what I'm going to call a visual metaphor. It's an object we see that should remind us of something else, or it has another message coded in it. And I, I want to name four ways in which I think it's a visual metaphor. First, I think this huge Ten Commandments expresses in size what we think in theology. That is, the Decalogue matters, and it matters big time. It matters writ large. It's a not-so-subtle way of saying Pay attention to these laws. Don't lose sight of them, because after all, if you're at the theme park, you literally can't lose sight of the Ten Commandments, because in fact, they are so, so big. And maybe that's the point. We can't afford to miss these commandments or not see them in their lives. So in that sense, I like it. It's a visual metaphor where size reflects theological importance. A second way it's a visual metaphor is that I think it maps our journey of discipleship in a monument. As you can tell, uh, there are steps leading up from the bottom of the Ten Commandments all the way up to the top. I counted, I think there's about 350. And uh, these steps are big steps. And over time, the ground has shifted, so they're quite uneven steps, and many of the steps, in fact, are broken. Um, it actually is very dangerous uh, to, to actually walk up these steps. Um, there, now, there is a way to drive up the back side of the mountain, all the way up to the Ten Commandments, park, and walk about 10 yards and see the whole thing. But I think the steps are the point. They remind us of the arduous journey of obedience 
to these laws. Sometimes, in fact, in keeping the Ten Commandments, we misstep or stumble or get winded. But I think the park reminds us that in spite of that, we are still beckoned up to the top. We are still beckoned to take one more step up the journey. So in this sense, maybe it's the, the placement of the monument on a, a somewhat treacherous slope that is part of the point of our experience of it. It reminds us of something of our journey. Now third, a third way it's a visual metaphor, I think, has to do with what's on top. The bigness of this place is not just embodied in the Ten Commandments. At the very top of uh, the Ten Commandments is what is thought to be the world's largest New Testament. If you have the world's largest Ten Commandments, why not have the world's largest New Testament? And that, in fact, is me standing uh, there in my rain jacket when we went in April. Um, now, this big New Testament is open to Matthew 22, uh, verses 37 to 39, and it's not by accident. In this text, a lawyer asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And here's how Jesus responds, no doubt a familiar text to many of you. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is, second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. At the field of the woods, this is literally true. From a distance, the Ten Commandments literally hang off the slope from the words of Matthew 22, or Jesus' words in Matthew 22, 37 to 39. So in this sense, the, field of the Fields of the Woods Park gives us a visual metaphor for the relationship of the Old and New Testament. This park is doing a lot of work theologically, although I think subtly and in the background. Now let me name a fourth way it's a, a visual metaphor. There will actually be a fifth that I'll say later. But the fourth way for now it's a visual metaphor is this. As you climb the steps, you are in the presence of the Ten Commandments. But you have to note that if you're right here where this person is, and you're in the, literally the, 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 the very middle of the Ten Commandments, what can't you do at that point? You can't read it. Right? So the closer you get to this monument, the less you're able to make out what it says. Another way of saying it is that it's visible, but it's not legible. It's visible, but not legible. What matters here at the park is its display, its presence, not its particulars, uh, particularities of its content. That's also reinforced by the fact that they're giving us a synopsis of the Ten Commandments, not the full text itself. And I think this point, and, and the other three points I have mostly affirmation for, and this is the one point that I think could be problematic. I think this experience of being in the Word but not being able to read it is actually true of popular Christianity more broadly today. So I'm reading that as a metaphor for the state of biblical literacy today. That is to say, as we've talked about in this course, more Bibles are bought than ever before. There's more Bible bumper stickers and t-shirts and tattoos. 78% of Americans say the Bible is the word of God, but two-thirds of Americans can't name more than five of the Ten Commandments. We are in the word. We are around the word. We purchase the word, but we don't often read it. Or if we do, we still don't often know it all that well. It speaks to a certain paradox in American Christianity today. The idea that the Bible is sometimes more, that the idea of the Bible is sometimes more important than a careful study of its content. And that feels true at this 
place as well. And I will, uh, so I offer that as a somewhat of a critical word, though I think a lot of the things here at, at the Fields of the Wood is actually quite positive, or at least resonated with my own experience of it. Now, I do have a, a word to redeem that in just a moment, moment, but we'll return to that in a second. So that's Fields of the Woods. I want to quickly then go to the Creation Museum and say a little bit more about this creature. As previously noted, the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter are only 40 miles apart, and this is no accident. It's part of a promotional deal. They actually sell package tickets. You, buy, you get a little bit discount if you buy tickets to both places and do it in the same day. But it's more than this. Both places, the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, are founded and operated, or excuse me, I should say, funded and operated by a Christian ministry called Answers in Genesis. Now, so to know a little bit more about these Bible theme parks and the theologies behind them, we have to know a little bit more about Answers in Genesis. What sort of organization is this? Well, from their website, Answers in Genesis describes itself as an apologetics ministry dedicated to helping Christians defend their faith and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ effectively. All that's well and good. We focus on providing answers, that's the name, to questions about the Bible, particularly the book of Genesis, regarding key issues such as creation, evolution, science, and the age of the earth. They represent, Answers in Genesis does, a growing movement in the U.S. known as biblical creationists, or sometimes just creationism. Uh, they believe that events, in, in brief, of Genesis 1 are a reliable, historical, and literal account of the creation of the world and humanity. I just want to name some of the tenets of creationism. You might have experienced this somewhere, uh, either uh, in certain churches or, or in culture, but here are the basic tenets of creationism. It's more than just the idea that God created the world. Many, many, many Christians, maybe arguably all Christians, believe that God had something to do with the creation of the world, but that's not what creationism is. They're more specific about how God did it, and perhaps more importantly, when God created the earth. One of their points is that all creation took place in six literal 24-hour days. Six literal 24-hour days. So when the Bible says, and there was evening and there was morning, the first day, it means an actual day as we know it today. One sunrise to the next sunrise, or one sunset to the next sunset. Uh, it doesn't mean broad periods or terms or ages, but actually 24-hour days. So that's one point. The second point, and closely related to it, to it, is that they believe the Earth, and really, in fact, the whole universe, is 6,000 years old. The whole universe is 6,000 years old. This is a non-negotiable. Sometimes they flex up to 10,000 years old, but it's never much more than that. Uh, so how do they get this? Well, working from genealogies in Genesis 5 and 11, they add up the ages of individuals to get to this number. Assuming, of course, these genealogies are seamless, there's no gaps, and they're trying to tell a literal story about the age of the cosmos. Uh, so, then, there's about 2,000 years from creation to Abraham, another 2,000 years between Abraham and Jesus, and then another 2,000 years between Jesus and us. And that's it. That's the history of the world. Uh, to give you a point of reference, the earliest Egyptian kingdoms are dated to 4,000 BCE, so 6,000 years ago. And, but that, for creationists, is the time for the creation of the entire universe, including all of human history and all of the history of all geological processes known today. 
So it follows from this then that there's a third point. They don't believe in any such thing as evolution, and neither do they believe in any geological or astrophysical processes that are described by scientists today. Uh, and this is, presents a certain problem, I think. Uh, what about fossils that are 350 million years old via carbon dating? What about measurements of the temperature of cosmic microwave background radiation that places the age of the universe as 13.799 billion, 13 billion years old? What do they do with these pretty indisputable scientific facts? Well, uh, they don't believe them, and for a couple reasons. One possibility is that God simply created the world to look old. There are, in fact, 35 million uh, year old fossils, but they're hoaxes. They, they're, they were programmed that way. They're just 6,000 years old, or actually less, but they're made to look really, really old. That's one of the central tenets of creationism. Another, though closely related, is that uh, the flood, due to the flood, the worldwide flood, uh, it created, it was so massive and destructive that it created geological features in the earth that made things look really, 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 really old. It's, it's a similar argument. And then the third point they make about it is just that scientists are simply wrong. They just don't know how to do their science. The people who, are, who measure the universe as 13.799 billion years old are wrong by about 13.799 billion years, according to creationism. Uh, the fourth point, I think, is most interesting uh, in a way. Genesis 1 says that God made all the animals in the same week as he made all the humans. So when it comes to dinosaurs, you have one of two possibilities. Either they were never created, or they were created and thus existed alongside the humans. Well, the creationists believe the latter, that they were created and that the dinosaurs lived quite happily alongside humans. That's why if you go to the Creation Museum, uh, in fact, um, you will see a lot of displays with humans and dinosaurs together in them. Now, you might also suspect that Noah didn't bring them on the ark, right? Maybe they got left off the ark. And here's actually a funny cartoon that talks about this. It says, uh, oh, crap, was that today? <laughs> uh, it's so, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but in fact, they don't believe this. They believe, in fact, that the dinosaurs made it onto the ark, and they have all of these elaborate uh, arguments about how there is space on the ark for the dinosaurs along with all the other animals. This is all you can learn about uh, in, in, in these museums. I'm gonna skip a little bit for sake of time. They actually, uh, this is one of those exhibits where uh, they picture a dinosaur with a little um, uh, boy or girl, I can't tell uh, in this case, but many, many of the exhibits uh, actually look that way. Now, there's more to say about this. It, it looks like Jurassic Park, but again, only 4,000 years ago. Oh, by the way, so then how do they say, so what happened to the dinosaurs? Why aren't they here today? Well, the theory as it goes for them is that they, they ate a sort of plant that was not readily available after the flood. It kind of got lost in the flood. The plants did because the plants didn't come on the ark. And so after the flood, the dinosaur population began to dwindle, but it was really humans who hunted and killed dinosaurs, and they actually didn't go out of uh, extinction. I'm not, I do not make this up, until the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages is, uh, is when the dinosaurs went extinct, and, and they weave this into stories about dragons. So when you hear legends about dragons, they just assume people mean dinosaurs, and that it was actually real experiences. Uh, in the other case, there's a lot to say here, um, but what's most troubling, if that's not troubling, what's most troubling is this, is how sharply they put the matter. Uh, either scientists are right or God lied. Either the earth is only 6,000 years old 
or the Bible is completely untrustworthy. Either it happened this way or we can't believe in Jesus. That's how starkly presented this is in the Creation Museum and all the literature that they produce. It spawns, in fact, their apologetic ministry. Uh, convincing people of the, sh the young age of the universe is a step towards convincing people about the truth of Christ. And there's many, many ways that they try to do this. Uh, I'm going to skip some of these, but they have this whole assortment of, of cartoons uh, that lampoon uh, ideas about evolution. This one, uh, Darwin is carved into a Trojan horse, uh, and they're trying to keep the Trojan horse out of the church, because you know what happens when you let a Trojan horse in on the other side of the walls. Uh, this one parodies Darwin as like a Santa Claus-like figure. That it's, it's kind of the same thing, like to believe in Darwin is like to believe in Santa Claus, uh, is kind of the, the analogy that they want to make. So it's the starkness of their dispute, I think, that uh, is so difficult um, to handle in some ways. It's why it's, it feels so much more pushy than Fields of the Woods. Um, uh, so, so let me, um, with that being said then, let me just add a couple words of conclusion. Uh, I'm actually going to skip my response. In, in many ways, I've named some of this stuff in earlier courses. I've apparently prepared about three hours worth of material tonight. Uh, so I need to manage this here as we go through. It's all on the Prezi account, uh, and, I'll, and it all will be available in my notes. Uh, when we get the digital course up and running, all of it will be available. So let me then offer a few words of conclusion. First, about these, uh, the, kind of these two experiences, Creation Museum versus uh, the uh, Fields of the Woods. Um, to me, these, as I've said before, feel very uh, different. Um, uh, uh, in one way, I think the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter take themselves a bit too seriously, in a way. Um, sure, there are fun things to do, but it's not about amusement to be there. It's actually about education, or maybe better yet, indoctrination. There's a very strong interpretive message to be pushed and sold and inculcated among uh, visitors to these museums. The Fields of the Wood, on the other hand, seems to take itself less seriously in, it w in a way. It presents the Ten Commandments, but it doesn't tell you that Moses wrote them. It doesn't tell you how to interpret them. It doesn't try to, to, uh, to say they have some secret copy of the Ten Commandments that reveals some secret. They leave things more open to interpretation. They more want to reinforce the importance of God's law rather than its interpretation. Or maybe better yet, they want to leave some space to interpret. And I think this is actually, to return to an earlier point, another visual metaphor. Remember how we talked about how the, uh, uh, the monument's actually not legible when you're actually in it? Well, the way to read the Ten Commandments at Fields of the Woods is to come down the western slope, cross the valley, and go up the eastern slope and look across, right? You need distance to be able to read the giant Ten Commandments. And I think that's part of the point. That is, uh, they're acknowledging some distance between text and reader. The Creation Museum and the Noah's Ark, they try to narrow that distance down as much as possible. In fact, they try to remove it. They want to put you right there with the text and tell you how to read it. I think the Fields of the Woods says, take the space. We know the space exists, and it's in that space between the eastern and western slope that the real and difficult work of interpretation happens. It's a distance of time from ancient authors to modern readers. It's a distance of culture from the ancient Near East to contemporary America. It's a distance that allows us to think as believers about what the Bible means, and the fields of the woods does that for us 
I think, in a beautiful way. Now, I want to say I get up. I'm now already almost over, and I just want to say two last words, and I'll get you out of here on this, and then I'm happy to, to take some questions and comments uh, at the end. First, and this will have to be very abbreviated, what do these places get right? Well, my contention about these Bible theme parks is that people don't, in fact, pile in their cars to go to them just as a vacation, kind of National Lampoon style. I think what, in fact, is happening for many Christians when they go to these Bible theme parks is they're taking a pilgrimage. They're going on a journey, both physically and metaphorically, to a place, to a site, to an idea that they deem to have some sort of importance and value and holiness and sacredness to what they believe. And I want to say that this is something that's good. Even if we don't love the idea of some of these theme parks, even if you think, I would never go to the Creation Museum, Christians today have lost sight, for the most part, of the idea of pilgrimage. We have lost sight of the fact that there are places on this earth that somehow, and in some ways that we might not fully understand, manifest God's presence and power more than others. Right? This, the pilgrimage has had a deep and rich history in the Christian tradition. It's recorded in the pages of Scripture, in the Psalms. We hear songs people sang, likely as they went to Jerusalem or went to the temple, the Songs of Ascent. Uh, in early Christian tradition, from as early as the 4th century CE, Christians flocked to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem, to go and visit places they believed Christ taught or lived or was. There's the, uh, in Bethlehem, there's the Church of the, of the Nativity. In Jerusalem, there's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. People go to these places to be closer to this history of what has happened there. Christians for ages have fought and prayed and journeyed to places on pilgrimage. And I think we don't have that today, by and large. Sometimes we make trips, but by and large, I think we've lost a sense of pilgrimage. And I think what these Bible theme parts teach us, and there's more to say about all this, and, and you can um, find it here in some of the slides, is that this is the part we might want to uncover, even if we're not comfortable with these particular versions of Bible theme parks. I want to skip ahead here. Um, again, this would have been done in hour two of this presentation. Uh, and I was actually thinking I was doing a little better in this course than I had in previous courses. And then this last one. Um, okay, so here's the last word then. I'll get you out of here on this. And I've said that three times. Uh, but this really is the last word of which I'll get you out of here on. Um, in this course, we've seen a lot of curious artifacts of faith through these four weeks and eight sessions. We've seen gospel summaries that look a lot like cliff notes. We've seen Bibles that look a lot like People uh, magazine. We've seen churches that look a lot like drive-through restaurants or drive-in movie theaters. And now we've seen, seen Christian destination sites that look a lot like Disney World. Along our road uh, have been church signs hashing out theological debates about whether dogs have souls. We've seen misspelled Hebrew tattoos. We've seen churches with soccer flags and networks with Christian reality TV shows. And we've seen bumper stickers galore. It's the end of our course, but it's really not the end of roadside religion. Its forms, that is, of these everyday artifacts of faith, will continue to evolve, to respond to culture, to technology, to millennials and subsequent generations. But it will certainly be the case, and this is my main argument of the course, it will certainly be the case that faithful, well-meaning Christians 
will continue to seek to publicly express and transmit their beliefs, not only in churches and small groups and PW circles and men's breakfasts and the like, but rather to express and transmit their faith in and through what we've been referring to as everyday artifacts of faith. And so, as long as this is the case, then we never really will reach the end of our study of roadside religion. Thank you very much for being with us in this course.